Hello and welcome to the BCA LCA Bible Study, Holy Holy. Today we will be wrapping up our three-part series on the different facets of the phrase, Be Holy as I Am Holy. Two weeks ago, we walked through Leviticus 23 and examined how God intended holiness to be a celebration of the work that He has done in each of our lives. Last week, we walked through the laws of Leviticus to see how holiness brings us a freedom that no other life could possibly help us to achieve. This week, we will be looking at what a life of holiness can do for the world that we live in and how ultimately God plans to use our holiness as a step in His redemptive plan. Holiness, therefore, is not just a call to be like God, but to join with God as He draws all people to Himself. Let's dive in. I remember very few of the exact quotes professors said in class during my time in college. I remember the sentiments behind their lectures, the overarching idea of a lesson, and some of the ideas that I picked up because of my time in their classroom, but not very many exact quotes. One of the few that stands out in my mind, however, is the quote, we are wired for stories. And of course, that's true. When you meet someone for the first time, a common question is, what is your favorite book or movie or TV show? Because we want to know, in some way, what stories best speak to that person. Your favorite family traditions are rooted in stories. We are not machines that go arbitrarily through the motions and traditions of rules. We have story. Story motivates meaning in our actions. This has been true for humankind throughout history. And God, knowing this, wove his covenant into a story. But more so than simply weaving the covenant into story, God wove redemption into story and allowed us to partake in his redemptive plan through that story. God's call to be holy, therefore, involves an invitation to make his kingdom more and more of a reality. We are not holy just for our own benefit, although holiness certainly does help us, as we've already seen, it is because God envisions his people to be holy, to be a city on a hill, shining a light to all. The book of Deuteronomy kicks off with what would probably be a weird time in Israel's history. Forty years ago, the Israelites stood on the border of the Promised Land after spending roughly a year traveling from Egypt to reach this place. When they arrive, they send spies in to investigate the land they are about to take possessions of. And the spies' report is not quite positive. The land is filled with giants, they explain. The terrified Israelites all of a sudden began to question whether or not they wanted to go in after all. God decides to help them make that decision and answer the question for them. No, you will not be going into the promised land. At least this generation won't be. They will have to wait for 40 years. The first generation out of Egypt is doomed to die in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. Deuteronomy kicks off after those 40 years have passed. 40 years ago, a generation of Israelites, fresh from the Exodus, stood at the base of Mount Sinai and received God's covenant. Now, the next generation stands at the base of Mount Moab to hear Moses recite the laws to them, hence the name Deuteronomy, which means second law. This generation receives their call readily and enters the promised land. This generation had spent the past 40 years learning to live by the word, love, promise, and grace of God. It was time for the real work to begin now. 
building the kingdom of God. In his excellent book, Far as the Curse is Found, Michael D. Williams notes, There is nothing particularly inviting about Canaan simply as real estate. To be sure, the book of Joshua records that when the spies surveyed the land, they returned and reported that it was a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Certainly, there were fertile areas in Canaan at the time of the conquest, and undoubtedly, the land was more inviting than it is today. But overall, the climate of Canaan, then as now, was semi-arid. The encroachment of the Sahara across North Africa and into Canaan began in the third millennium, and the ground is extremely rocky. Agriculturally, God could have done much better by the people he made for himself. They were not getting the choicest piece of property for their crops and herds. If that had been the goal, the Nile River would have been far better. Or, if safety from marauding neighbors or security from social and cultural corruption had been God's intent, the island of Madagascar or island would have provided security and isolation for his chosen people. God's choice of Canaan as a land for Abraham was central and intentional to the redemptive message for which Abraham had been chosen. What was important about this particular piece of real estate was its geographic relationship to other lands. It was a doorway to the world on the way to everywhere else, bounded by the Mediterranean to the west and the vast expanse of the Arabian desert to the east. Canaan is a natural bottleneck between Asia Minor, Asia, and Africa. It is no wonder that Canaan is the most traveled, most disputed, most fought over, and most conquered land in the history of the world. Located astride the major trade route between Asia Minor, Asia, and Africa, the land of Canaan was ideally situated to serve as the focusing point for cultural exchange. It was God's intention that Canaan would serve as a staging area for the dissemination of the faith to the heathen nations that surrounded Israel. God did not call his people to a mountaintop monastery, but to a strip mall on Mail Street. Ezekiel 38.12 declares that the Israelites live in the center of the nations. O. Palmer Robertson unpacks this by saying, As a narrow land bridge connecting the continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia, this place and no other was rightly situated for the extension of God's covenant blessing to the entire world. The Holy Land of Israel becomes the staging ground for disseminating God's gospel to all people of the earth. And how does God plan to do this? Through story. As far as passing the covenant on from one generation to the next goes, God gives this command in Deuteronomy 6, 20-25, saying, In the future, when your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees, to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Children would get to grow up in Israel learning about God's covenant, not because they were given a set of rules to adhere to, but because they understood the God who gave them that covenant. How could growing up and learning the stories of deliverance, 
guidance through the deserts, conquering nations, splitting seas, stopping suns, tearing down walls, and watching fire and storm descend upon a mountain to make a covenant, not motivate children to follow and love this covenant-making God. Watching their parents be holy and then hearing stories about the God who called them to this holiness was God's plan to ensure future generations of holy people. The plan was similar for Israel spreading God's covenant to all people of the earth. In Deuteronomy 16, God describes his expectation for the celebration of the Passover festival. Verse 11 says, And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Implicit in this passage is the expectation that the foreigners would celebrate the Passover with the Israelites. Imagine the scene for a moment. You are a traveling merchant. You're traveling through any given town in Israel, and you've stopped for a few days, and you're staying with a family before continuing on. The day comes for you to leave, and the family stops you. You cannot travel today. It is a holy day, and we must celebrate, they tell you. What are we celebrating? The curious merchant would ask. Freedom, they respond. That night, the foreigner is told the story of God delivering them out of Egypt. He hears all about the great things that God has done for the people. This is the God of the whole earth. He loves all people deeply, including you, foreigner. How could you not talk about this God when you return to your home country? How could you not want to follow this God above all others? Out of Israel, a message of grace and hope spread when God's people were living holy lives. Jumping forward to the New Testament and our lives, Paul issues this command in the closing pages of 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, doing so with gentleness and respect. In the same way that God called the Israelites to be holy and spread his message, God calls us to do the same. Live a holy life so that people take notice. There's something different about them. And when they ask, have your story ready. Tell them how God changed your life, how he gave you hope, and what a life full of hope looks like. It all comes back to holiness. When God says, be holy as I am holy, there is so much tied up in that call. Holiness means celebrating what God has done for you. Holiness means living the way that you were always meant to live. And holiness means drawing more and more people into the glories of God's grace.